Today's reading was written 2,000 years ago and it was valued so much that it's been kept so that we can read it today. It's Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 3, starting at verse 10. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kind of things happened to be in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, as I come to speak this morning, we've just begun to move on in our hope theme. Hope is our big theme all the way through 2018, but uh, particularly at this time, we're looking at some questions of hope. So we're saying we are a people who are filled with hope, but as we communicate and engage and share with uh, many people around us who have all kinds of different worldviews, there will be some questions that come up, and we want to understand how we will respond to those questions. And this morning's question is, can we trust the Bible? The German-born German, German physicist, Albert Einstein, who developed the theory of relativity, he was not a person of faith. He's quoted as saying, the word God, for me, is nothing more than the expression and product of human weakness. And the Bible, a collection of honorable, but still primitive legends, which are nevertheless pretty childish. No interpretation, no matter how subtle, can for me change this. He was a very intelligent person who was dismissing the Bible. Last week, we explored the question, does God really exist? And those who struggle to believe in the existence of God will have different reasons for their point of view, but one reason is often that they will doubt the legitim legitimacy of the Bible. They will doubt its accuracy, its trustworthiness, its truthfulness. They may see it as outdated, irrelevant, or mythological. And that's what brings us to this question this morning. Can we trust the Bible? And it can be hard for those of us who have lived with Scripture all of our lives who read it every day, who've known God speaking time and time again through the words of Scripture, heard the call of God on our lives through the preaching of Scripture, 
those of us who live and breathe what God is saying to us through Scripture, it's hard for us sometimes to think into the lives of those who would totally disregard this book as utterly irrelevant. Here is our treasure. Here is the message from our best, 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 best friend. Here is the basis on which we become a people of hope. Our true hope is in Jesus, the living word of God. But the way we understand that hope is through the pages of Scripture. It's so important. We hear and accept the words of Paul to Timothy, which we had in our reading, that all Scripture is God-breathed, that it is useful for teaching, correcting, training in righteousness. We feel the sense of adventure as we discover more and more about Jesus, the living word, through the pages of Scripture. So what do we say to someone who turns around to us and just says, it's outdated, it's irrelevant? How can we bring a message of hope, which is shaped by the scriptures, to someone who would discount the scriptures as irrelevant? That's the big question. Now... I could blow your minds with a lot of information, which I don't really want to do this morning. I just want to try and give you some pointers as to where we might go with this. So let's, let's just think for a few moments about some of the problems of Scripture, what people say about it, that they find the problems. And uh, a lot of this information I will send on to the home group leaders and uh, some workbooks so that if uh, in your home groups you are picking up on this, then that's absolutely fine. If you want the information at any other times, in other ways, just let me know so that uh, we can do that. But here we go. These are some of the problems that people say. There's the accuracy of the text itself. People will say, this text, has it been handed down to us accurately? Can we be sure it's correct? And there are a number of things that we should notice in answer to that. There has been great care in copying the manuscripts. The accuracy of ancient texts is often noted by the number of early copies that are handwritten and whether those copies agree. And if you can get four or five or six copies of an early manuscript and they're all saying the same thing, then scholars will say, oh, that's good evidence that this is an accurate text. Do you know how many early manuscripts there are, handwritten manuscripts of the New Testament? There are over 25,000 copies. And by and large, they all agree. The number of differences is minimal. On that basis, there is no doubt that the Bible is the most trustworthy document in the ancient world as far as the copying of the text is concerned. The Jews who copied the manuscripts of the Old Testament took incredible care over their work. Uh, I understand that there would usually be a scribe and two other people watching over them to make sure that it was accurate. The copying of the text is careful. And then we note the detail of the information included. For example, when Mark in his gospel wrote about the person who carried the cross of Jesus, do you remember that story? That Simon of Cyrene carried the cross of Jesus, but he didn't just say Simon carried the cross of Jesus. He said Simon of Cyrene carried the cross of Jesus. Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus to make it absolutely clear who this person was. Now, if there was any question about whether that story was true, it'd be easy to track down Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, and ask him. It's that kind of detail that is here in the pages of Scripture. 
that gives opportunity for it to be questioned, but also gives a strength of affirmation to it. There were large public events feeding 5,000 people, raising a Roman leader's daughter from the dead. It would be easy for anyone to discredit those things when they were written down. There is detail in the text. And the time of writing is relevant as well. Because relatively speaking, compared with other ancient manuscripts, these texts were written early on. Especially the letters of Paul, the time of writing of the early manuscripts. There were people who were still alive when these things were written down. The Apostle Paul, writing about the resurrection of Jesus, mentioned that over 500 people saw Jesus at one time. And then he goes on to particularly say, most of them are still alive. And if most of them were still alive, they were able to reaffirm the text that was written. There were plenty of people around who were wanting to discredit Christianity. But we don't have evidence of people disputing what was written down. And the archaeological evidence as well that grows all the time as those scenes are now uncovered through excavation that confirm often the accuracy of the story, both in Old and New Testaments. We could spend an awful lot of time on that. Just one example would be the two pools in Jerusalem. In the north of the city, the pool of Bethesda. In the south of the city, the pool of Siloam. Both been uncovered. Both are wonderful affirmations of many of the stories around the city of Jerusalem. We have lots of evidence to suggest that the text is accurate. But some people come to this from a different angle. The concern of some might be the accuracy of the text, but the concern of others might be that it is all written in a different culture to ours. The difference in culture. So even if the text is correct, some of the events described are very hard for us to make sense of in our culture today. You read some of the Old Testament, and people will often talk about the violence and the polygamy of the Old Testament. When Israel entered the land of Canaan, they didn't come into an empty space that had a for sale sign written on it. There were many people living there, many different groups of people who regularly fought each other. And it seems as if Israel got drawn into that violent world of warfare. From right back in Genesis 4 verse 19, Lamech took for himself two wives. Abraham, Jacob, David and Solomon all had multiple wives and yet all were used by God as key leaders of the Israelite nation. Now interest, interestingly in each case there were deep problems that were highlighted within the text of scripture concerning that tradition of polygamy making clear that it was not a good way to live. But the fact remains that it is there. The violence is there. The multiple relationships are there. The attitudes to slavery, some people have a real problem with, in both Old and New Testaments, that slaves were considered a normal part of life. The question was how should they be treated? And scripture tells that they should be treated well. But should they be there in the first place? That's the question we would ask. 
And so we have a need for careful interpretation because this book was written and the life of the Israelite nation was developed and the life of Jesus and his followers was nurtured in cultures that are very, very different to our own. People might put those cultural challenges as reasons why the Bible is irrelevant, but that misses the point. It presents a different context. But as we understand what Scripture is saying, it may give the background to what was going on, but the message is the same for all cultures and all times. We need to interpret the text in a way that is appropriate. So then others might come to this and say, okay, accept that the text is accurate, understand that it was written at a different time to the time that we're living in now. But what about the different ways in which the writers give their story? Scripture is a library of 66 books. It has many different authors. Those people were part of shaping what we have today. What's the role of the writers? Did they twist, distort? What did they do? When you have multiple witnesses of the same events, it's always interesting, isn't it? And some people will dismiss the gospel accounts because there are four of them and they're not all the same. Many years ago, my son was called to be a witness of a crime in Wood Green in North London when he was out with some of his friends. He and three others were all called to be witnesses. There was general agreement with what they saw and what they said. But they each recalled different aspects of the event because they each perceived it and remembered it in slightly different ways. It's the same with the gospel writers. They're each recalling those aspects of the gospel story that they especially remember that is particularly interesting to them. And then more than that, the writers themselves have a theological intention. They have an intention in what they are conveying. They themselves were part of the story. The life that they were living became part of the story they told. So Matthew was living within a Jewish community. And those who believed in Jesus, amongst whom he was living and talking, were keen to retain their Jewish heritage. Luke was a doctor and inevitably focused on those who were ill and on Jesus' healing ministry. John reflected deeply the life of Jesus, identified a number of signs of the kingdom in what Jesus said and did, and that shaped and formed his gospel. The writers were part of the story. And they had a part to play as well. Just because the accounts are not all the same doesn't mean they're wrong. And then think about Jesus and the scriptures. Remember how often he used the Old Testament as a text of authority. When he was tempted by Satan, he said, it is written, it is written, it is written. He lived out the heart of the Old Testament, which of course pointed to him. And we can see how much the life of Jesus was a fulfillment of what the Old Testament was saying. And so there's a lot that we can say in response to those who would challenge the significance of the Bible with these kinds of questions. We can say that the text is accurate, that emerges from a different culture, but gives the principles for living in all cultures, that it conveys the message of God through the minds and the words of each author, and that ultimately... 
Jesus is the key to understanding this book. If you're asked about the problems of scripture, they are some good answers that you can give. But I want to take you just a little bit further this morning. Not just to have some answers when people might say, what's the point? What's the accuracy? What's the truth about this book? I want us to get to the impact of Scripture. Because sometimes you need to turn the negative comments into the positive ones. And as well as just answering when someone might say, the text is wrong, well, actually it's accurate. The culture is relevant, well, actually it's just different. The writers said different things, well, actually they were, each had a purpose in what they were saying and so on. You can answer in that way. But there is more to it. The impact of scripture. This book remains the world's bestseller. That is remarkable. It has been translated into more than 1,500 languages. At least that as far as the New Testament is concerned. And some portions of scripture. More than 650 languages have a complete translation of the Bible. And as far as anyone can gather the statistics, the information that I have is that over 100 million Bibles are sold and given away each year. And that's just the hard copies. And now increasingly, Scripture is read and used electronically as well. It remains the world's best seller. It has one remarkable message. And that came across from our reading. I haven't said much about our reading this morning, but it's a very, very significant passage. It obviously speaks from within Scripture, about Scripture. And to some extent, we have to set a step aside from that when we're answering the questions of our critics. But as we come now inside the book, we find this amazing text. Verse 14, as for you, Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. Because you know those from whom you have learned it. And how from in infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. Isn't that amazing? From infancy. From the very earliest days. How you have known the Holy Scriptures. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the message of Scripture. That is the one message of Scripture to bring to us the message of salvation through Jesus Christ, the way in which life can be transformed by Jesus. I love this quote, although I don't know the author. It's a, a William P. White. But the quote is this. The Bible is a harp with a thousand strings. Play on one to the exclusion of its relationship to the others and you will develop discord. Play on all of them, keeping them in their places, in the divine scale. And you will hear heavenly music all the time. All the time. Hold it together. And the one message is filled with heavenly music. It's a remarkable message. I love those verses that Ian gave to each of those who became members this morning. 
And that very familiar word, verse in John 3 and verse 16, that God loved the world so much that he gave his only son so that ever, whoever believes in him may not die but have everlasting life. This is the message of the Bible. And it's so important to keep that one remarkable message in focus. This book also has the power to change lives. There are many stories that have been told across the generations of the difference which this book has made in the lives of so many people. Mark Clark, the author of the book, The Problem of God, wrote about his own story. And he wrote this, that as a young man, I believed in Christ before I ever entered a church. And my encounter with God wasn't primarily with Christians or with church at all, but with the Bible itself. This is what he said, and this is not so long ago. He said, I would sit at the local parks or in front of my high school, smoking half a pack of cigarettes and devouring the Bible. I read the stories of Jesus and his teaching and took them to heart. Over time, faith grew within me. I started to believe and change. I moved from stealing cars, throwing rocks through people's windows and doing drugs to becoming a 17-year-old who loved God and was on fire to change the world. Isn't that wonderful? From reading the book. This is what Paul says in his words to Timothy. In the next verse of our reading, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. And you see on the screen ahead of me, I love that uh, quote from C.H. Spurgeon. A Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. Because if you're spending your time engaging with this text, reading, understanding, thinking, exploring, comparing one verse with another and all these sort of things, whether you're using a hard copy or electronic copy or however, if you are using it, and if it is a hard copy such that the Bible is then beginning to fall apart, it usually belongs to someone who's not. Because it's a powerful book that makes all the difference. This is the impact of Scripture. It is the world's bestseller. It has a remarkable message. It has the power to change lives. It is God-breathed. It is profitable. And finally, let me take you beyond the Scriptures. Just in this last thought that the written word of God leads us to the living word of God, who is Jesus himself. And John, in his gospel, has very clear ways of saying this. There was an occasion when Jesus was speaking to the religious leaders of his day, and he said to them, you study the scriptures diligently, because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures, the Old Testament he was talking about, that testify about me, and yet you refuse to come to me and have life. We're not talking about worshipping a book. We're talking about worshipping a person. We're talking about coming to Jesus through the message that we hear in the pages of Scripture. We need to go beyond the Scriptures to the word of life himself, Jesus. Towards the end of John's Gospel, 
There are two kind of summary sayings, one at the end of chapter 20 and one at the end of chapter 21. At the end of chapter 20, we read this, that Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Believing not the book, but believing the person. And in the summary ending of chapter 21, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that could be written. So in a way, this is just the first edition. And this book could be extended many, many times with the testimony of God's people over the years, the stories of how God has spoken in our generation, in our society, in our context. There is no need to add them to the Bible because what we have written down here is what God intends us to have in written form to give us the understanding and teaching that we need. But the story of God's people goes on and you and I are part of it. And the written word of God leads to the living word of God, which is Jesus himself. And he is the one who makes all the difference. So don't be put off by those who might discredit the Bible. Be prepared to stand up and speak for the book that has amazing credibility. And don't take for granted what we have in front of us. Read, absorb, and allow God to speak through his word and bring to you the living presence and power of Jesus.